turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Okay, Mark chapter 9, we're in verse 2 this morning. Uh, hear me, if you don't have a Bible, we want you to follow along with us in, in a Bible to be able to kind of get used to flipping through the pages on. So if you don't have one, just raise your hand. Not weird at all. Get your hand up. If you don't own a Bible, you do now. It's a free gift to you. Please take this one, keep it, read it, love it. If you have a friend that doesn't have one, take it and give it to them. Okay? Mark chapter 9, verse 2. So here's what happened last week, and what happened last week is going to directly influence this week. Last week, after much, uh, much discussion and many miracles and much presentation by Jesus to say, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm God in the flesh, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, I'm, I'm the guy with whom you've all been waiting for, he's been trying to proclaim this to the people, something happens in the text last week where finally we see a light bulb go off, okay? Jesus, in this interaction with his apostles, we still got one up here. We got a Bible up here. Sorry about that, okay? And anyone? Maybe we're out, and there's two up here. I don't, what are we doing? We're, oh, we're, get, we're getting them. I'm sorry. Um, and so what we saw last week was this light bulb moment where all of us in Jesus, in this interaction with his disciples, says, who do you say that I am, Okay? Who do you say? Actually, who are other people saying that I am? And they say, well, you know, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're John the Baptist. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, finally not sticking his foot in his mouth, says, you are the Christ, which is the right answer. Right? After all the interactions with Peter throughout the first eight chapters of Mark, where he just says something that was inaccurate or just boneheaded, he finally says, you know what? You are the Christ. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the Messiah. You are God's son. And so finally, what we get is a fulfillment of what we saw in Mark chapter 1, where God comes down, or speaks rather from heaven over the baptism of Jesus, and says, this is my son Jesus with whom I am well pleased. And so immediately from the beginning, God, Jesus, establishing, this is who I am. And it took them eight chapters. It took them a long time to finally get, oh, you're him. Now we know. You're who we've been waiting for. Now what he's going to do for the rest of the Gospel of Mark, now that it's been established who he is, now he's going to teach them what he's all about and why he came. Because their view of why he came is significantly different from what it's going to end up being. And today is this turning point moment for the disciples to really wrap. Man, okay, so this is who you are. I think it means this, but you're telling me it means all of these things. And if we are to be disciples of Jesus as we're called, then we're going to try and do these things. And so what we're going to do today is... uh, is I'm going to throw out a new term for you, and, and I call it believership, okay? We get in the Bible this word discipleship all the time, and about being a disciple. These are my disciples. Follow Jesus. And, and to juxtapose that word, I want, to, I want to introduce believership. And so we're going to have believership and discipleship. In other words, we can believe who he is and not be a disciple, Okay? We can believe that Jesus, okay, he was a real guy. He's, that's who he is, but we may not follow him, which is an act of a disciple. So we're going to believership versus discipleship this morning, and, and that's the way this is going to go. Really answering the question, what does it mean for us? If, if, you're, if you're here and you're a Christian, what does it mean for you? If you're here and not a Christian, what would it mean for you to say this? You are the Christ. 
What does it mean for the Christian in the room to say, you are the Christ? What are the responsibilities that come with that proclamation? And then if you're here and you're still trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing, what would it look like? What is, what is the Bible actually saying your life will look like should you say, no, that, you're the Christ. You're the Savior of the world. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. Now, if there's anything in, in my life that is just a pet peeve, it's, it's really when we know the good we ought to do, but we don't do it. And, and I'm guilty of this all over the place. When we know, okay, this is, because I've, I've said this, and I believe this, then I should act this way. And it's from big things down to small things. We were driving on Route 66 on our way to this camping trip just this last weekend, and I remember driving down, and if you've been on Route 66 right now, there's a lot of work on the sidewalks, and so there was this one lane where the cones started coming in, so the right lane had to merge with the left lane. And so what I did is I, I intentionally allowed a guy who was stopped, I stopped my car and let him come in, right? Now, what is the expectation for that guy as I do him such a favor? A courtesy wave, right? Simple as that. It's roll down your window. If you can't use the left, you throw up the right, and I'll look at it through the rear view, okay? I got nothing, okay? And I got furious, okay? And so I drove. Eventually, it goes back to two. I drove by him, and I just waved at him, right? And that's sin. Um, what Jesus will talk about today is a significant responsibility, and truly, throughout all of the book of Mark, throughout the entire Bible, there's constantly this question. We even introduced it, I think, a month or two ago, of what does it mean for us to count the cost? What does it mean for us to truly understand who Jesus is, understand what he's calling us to, count the cost, and then choose to follow? Because I think an epidemic, really, within the nation is there are a lot of people who just jump to the follow without getting the first three pieces. They don't really know who he is. Maybe they figured that part out. But then they don't really know what they've been called to. Or maybe they do, but then they, but even in the midst of that, there's confusion. And so this morning, I, I call us to really consider, okay, we, who is Jesus? Okay, what has he called us to? Have we counted the cost and are we going to follow? And we're going to use this kind of rubric of believership and discipleship to get us through it. So we're going to look at four different stories today um, as we work through this. And all, I think, with one central theme. And I think it's, I think it's this. And, and this first story is, is literally, it's one of the most amazing stories in all of Scripture. Uh, we call it the transfiguration. This is this Jesus becoming extra beautiful. Okay? And so let's look at that now. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took him with Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So Jesus, he goes up to the he's like, I'm going to take three guys with me, he takes Peter, James, and John, his inner three, says, I want you to experience something. And they get up to this mountain, feel free to go and picture, like, just picture Humphreys, right? They're walking up Humphreys, he takes these three guys, they get to the summit, and Jesus transfigures, which Webster's Dictionary tells me it means to transform into something more beautiful or elevated. That, that you saw them in one light, they looked one way, and then in an instant, they just, it just was more beautiful. The only moment that I could think of in my life where this really made sense was my wedding day, okay? 
was my wedding day. And if you've been married, then you know this, right? You're standing up at the altar if you're the guy, and your wife comes around the corner, and usually you don't see her, right? The door's open, and it's intensely white. They're gleaming, and it's the most beautiful thing a single man has ever seen. And you see her come down in that moment, man, my wife, Verity, she was just transfigured, beautiful, emanating this glow. And this is the experience that all of a sudden these three guys are privy to. They've seen Jesus. They've been walking with this guy. And, and honestly, he's been pretty normal as, as a human. Like, he doesn't look any different. He's been doing some different things. But he doesn't look that much different. Looks just like them, bearded, dirty feet, the whole deal. And then in this instant, beauty, elevation, he looks different. And this is the moment that sets the context for us. Verse 4. And there appeared to him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So unlike my wedding, where I see my transfigured, beautiful bride coming down the aisle, I, I was not terrified. I was excited. Peter is terrified by the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. Just floored by this, doesn't know what to do, and he blurts out, it's good we're here, we'll make some tents, and the three of you guys can hang out and have a camping trip. Now, there's maybe some underlying things going on here that we'd have to think through, and, and we're, we're kind of, we're not sure about, but man, maybe there's some of this when we think through what we know Peter and the rest of the disciples are hoping for, which is that Jesus is going to come and conquer, right? He's going to come, and he's going to establish this kingdom with which they will overthrow Rome, and he's going to take the 12 that he's calling. Peter's going to be his right-hand man, and they're going to rule this piece, Maybe he's thinking that. He's like, all right, well, let's set up these tents. Let's, let's get this going. Let's, you know, we got, man, we've got two of the heroes here, two of the patriarchs. Now with the three of you, no one can stop us. Maybe he's thinking that. Maybe he was thinking, you know, let's set up some altars. Maybe these tents were more shrines to the three of them. And I think there's actually some reliability to this because of what Jesus responds with, what God the Father responds in this moment. What happens is that in this instance where Peter says this thing, we find out it wasn't the wisest thing to say because as he says it right immediately after, a cloud envelops them as if they weren't scared enough. A giant cloud surrounds them and amidst the cloud, a booming voice, I'm assuming, says, this is my son, Jesus. Listen to him. Okay, listen to him. I think there's a couple things happening here. One, as soon as he says this, Elijah and Moses both disappear. This is why I think there might be some reliability to him maybe trying to set up some shrines, set up some altars, something like that. Is because of the instant that God the Father speaks this truth to the people, the other two guys go. They're gone. Jesus raising up as the only prophet. 
as the only one. Elijah, Moses, intentional. Elijah, what? A prophet, uh, uh, yeah, a prophet, and um, summarizing, encapsulating all of the prophets who the Jews had such hope in. All their teaching, all their wisdom, they looked back to and said, the prophet said this, Jesus saying, I am the fulfillment of the prophets. Everything they've ever said was about me. I'm the better prophet. I'm the best teacher. Setting himself apart. Peter wants to set up shrines. Jesus says, no, no, I'm, I'm better than Elijah. I'm the fulfillment of everything Elijah's ever told you. And then you've got Moses, also intentional. Moses, what? The guy was given the law of God. He symbolizes the law of God. Jesus is saying, no, no, I, I also came to fulfill that. Not just all these problems. I came to fulfill the law. I'm better than the law. I am Jesus. He sets himself apart. That's why, again, I think maybe Peter's trying to set this up, and God says, no, 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 you're missing this. This is Jesus. This is the Christ. He is different. He is the one to whom all glory, honor, and praise is due. So he is set apart. Okay. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, again, this juxtaposition between Mark 1 and now Mark 9, where Mark 1 God says, this is Jesus, this is my son, I'm well pleased, know who he is. But now he's saying, now that you know, you gotta follow. You gotta listen. You gotta, you gotta, and it's in this listen, the word here is an active listening. It's not a listening like, hey, I've just heard words from you. It's a listen and do. It's what he's commanded, I will then go and follow him and do the same. And so we get this neat shift for the disciples. Okay, you, you've kind of got half the picture here. It's time to get the full thing. So believership versus discipleship. I think the believer will know who Jesus is, right? Like, like know who, know, okay, yeah, that's, that's, Je- that's Jesus. But the disciple is going to say, yeah, I know that. And in response to that knowing, I will follow. Okay. When I was in, uh, man, I must have been seventh, no, no, no. Jeez, like sixth grade. I was like 13 years old. I went to a soccer camp out at Rutgers University in New Jersey and, uh, and, and just was having a, a ball, having a blast. This one day, this coach comes out and starts training with us, and he's telling us all these different things. And we already had a collection of coaches that we liked, and they already had us doing some drills. And this guy comes out, starts having us do some other things. And we're like, well, who is this guy, right? Who, who is it? Why should we listen to you? We've already been told all this other stuff. And then we come to find out, which I probably should have known, but it was 1993 and the 1994 World Cup hadn't happened, but this was Alexi Lalas. And if you don't know who he is, he's the guy with the giant red goatee that was only known because he had a giant red goatee. He was also a pretty decent defender, but a lot of you guys are like, what, what sport is this? It's, it's soccer, okay? We just won the Women's World Cup, amen? All right. And so when I find out, when it clicks for us, oh my gosh, this is like one of the best players in American history teaching us new things. All of a sudden, I knew who he was, and everyone chimed in and started listening and doing everything he asked us for the entire day. There was a credibility to Alexi Lalas. There's obviously a far greater credibility to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Amen. We know who he is, and because of the credibility, because of who he is, the following should just make sense for us. We should listen to everything that he presents, and we say, all right, if you're saying this is the best, then you know better than I do, and I'm going to do it. 
And that's the call of the disciple. Let's keep going, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Now, I would say this, now more than ever, you've got Peter, James, and John thinking that this is about to go down. I mean, they've just seen Jesus more clearly than they ever had before. if, If any of the filth and the grime and the fact that he was just another human was sinking into their brains and hearts, thinking, well, it's not that big a deal. Now they've seen him in his glory. Now they've seen God the Father come down and speak in a giant cloud as Jesus was gleaming white. Listen to this guy. Now they're probably thinking, finally, this is it. Let's get going. He hasn't turned their understanding of what's next on its head yet. And so I'm thinking they're, they're revving up. And then Jesus starts talking about how he's going to have to die. And this is building off of some previous texts. And he's, they're like, wait, 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 this doesn't add up. If, if, if we're supposed to go and run this show now, if, if finally we're going to overthrow Rome, the persecution will end. We can do whatever we want. We're going to go out. We're going to build new temples. We're going to not be taxed. We're going we're to build just whatever we want. There's going to be freedom for us. It doesn't make sense if the leader of that revolution is about to die. Like, it, it doesn't add up for them, their entire sequence of events and how this is about to play out, if the whole leader of the revolution dies. If the one with whom all the power they've already seen is gone, how is this going to be accomplished? And so I think the believer-disciple breakdown here comes at the believer thinks that Jesus will serve his or her plans. But the disciple says, no, I'm going to serve yours. See, the believer is going to say, well, okay, uh, man, if you're God, then that means good things for me. If you're God and we're, we're, we're tight, right? Like, like we're buddies. You're, I'm your son. We're in. Then that means great things for me. But if the disciple understands who he is and listens to what he said and what is being asked and called of the disciple, no, he no longer serves our plans. He doesn't serve your plans. We all serve his. Okay? We serve Jesus' plans. And this is a, this is a crazy idea. This is, this, is, this is really messing with the minds of the apostles here. Because since they got asked to follow, they've been thinking something different. And he's calling them to, well, he's calling them to follow him to death. Okay. The Elijah piece in here, Elijah will come and all that stuff. We could spend a lot of time unpacking. It's really just saying the time is now. It's here. Okay. And if you really want more on that, we can talk about that. But that's what it means. Okay. Story 2, verse 14. This, this piece here almost doesn't make sense in the midst of the whole narrative that we're going to look at. But it is very intentionally placed in here. And we've seen this before. Mark kind of sandwiching like ideas as bread on either side. And the meat in the center is what defines the whole thing for us. And I think that's what this text does. 
What we're going to see is truly the gospel presented in a story in the midst of a call to discipleship. Verse 14, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And they asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So he asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So just a quick recap before we continue on with the story. Jesus sees that the disciples are having an argument with the scribes and with different people. There's a huge crowd around. And so he goes, hey, what's the deal? This man approaches and says, listen, I just want my son to be better. He has a spirit. It needs to be cast out. And your guys weren't able to do it. And so what's Jesus' response to this? It's this incredible moment of lament, I think, by Jesus. Oh, faithless generation, how long do I have to bear with you? Why do you not get this? Why are you missing this? I don't think he's doing it in an act of just like hatred or frustration or spite. I think he's doing it in a true sense of lament that this world is not the way it should be. If any of you have kids, you know this, right? And, and Gosh, man, I tell you, little Finley, he is just the coolest little dude. But sometimes, right, sometimes the answer for him is as simple as just go to bed, man. Like, you're tired. I can tell. You keep rubbing your face. You're crying. Your eyes are red. You're cranky. You're annoying. I hate you, you know. Uh, and, and he's just there. And I'm just like, dude, this, there's a very simple answer here. And it's when I place you in this perfectly rectangular, uh, just like sweet thing called a bed, you go to bed and all will be well. But it doesn't work, right? Sometimes. But you put him down and he gets up, he keeps crying and you know the answer is just go to sleep and you'll be happy. But you keep picking him up and you keep, and, and honestly, I feel like in, in, in a moment, right, and I, I'm not Jesus, and I don't have his heart, nor do I come close to the brokenness and lament of understanding the pain in this world. But in this moment, I'm saying, God, all I want for you, Finley, is to just be better. I, I just want you to be happy. I just don't want you to cry. And the answer is so simple. It's right here. Just go to bed. And he won't do it. And I honestly feel like Jesus, nine chapters into this thing, okay, months and months into walking with these people. And these people, I mean, stories had spread about Jesus. They knew what was going on. His disciples, they knew they'd seen the power and his frustration in this moment to lament of the brokenness. It's just the answer is right in front of you. And yet you're missing it. Let's look at the rest of the story. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. In these verses. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for the one who believes. 
Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Okay. So, so here's, here's this, this story. Again, sandwich, it, it, again, it doesn't make a ton of sense after what we just read and then leading into what we're going to read next. But I think at the heart of this whole passage is this idea. Two interactions that we see here. And the first one is the interaction between Jesus and the man who's pleading that his son would be relieved of the spirit. And I think in this interaction, you see some of the most true faith that you will see in all of Scripture. As Jesus says, no, listen, anything will come to those who believe. And he says, listen, I do believe. Jesus, help my unbelief. I, I do believe. Like, I do, I do get you. I understand who you are. I've heard the stories. I, I have trust. I have faith. But I'm still me. And I don't fully get it. I, I, I don't have perfect faith. I, I don't fully get your power. I don't fully understand your majesty. I have doubts. I have fears. I have frustrations. But Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love this proclamation of this man. Because, I, gosh, I think if, if the church, not, not just here, if the church globally would just come and be honest with ourselves, saying, I, I, I believe, but just help me. Jesus, help me. I, I, I'm not perfect. I think we begin to grow because God's going to answer that prayer every day. Okay. I think God's going to answer that, that, that humble heart, that contrite spirit to say, no, I, I do, I get it, kind of. But I need more of you, Jesus. I, I need you to, to give me more faith. I need more grace. I need the spirit that you've given me to teach me more about you. I can't figure this out. If we just were able to be that honest of a people, I think Jesus would show up every time. I think the believer, believership, discipleship, the believer says, well, I, I know everything I need to know, and I'm going to heaven. I'm done. I think the disciple has an ongoing desire to pursue God, to learn more, and to look like him. In humility, to walk that way. And I'll say, well, we are called to discipleship. We're called to be disciples. We're called to constantly pursue. We're not called to come to this place or go to that place and pretend that we have it all together. It doesn't exist. And it says, it doesn't help anybody. Like, it doesn't help. If you show up and you're broken and you're hurting and your faith is lacking, it doesn't help anyone in the room for you to make up a story. It helps if you're honest because then we see the gospel at work in your life. We get to see Jesus come in. We can pray together. We can be encouraged by your story. And probably, just probably, there's 75% of the people in the room have similar stories. That I, I do believe, but gosh, Jesus, help my unbelief. I need you. I can't figure and navigate this whole thing out on my own. 
like I said, this last weekend, we were at this camping trip, and, it, and it's for Nate, you know, and he's, uh, he's going away in a few weeks, and so we wanted to spend this time, and we just, you know, we had the super kind of cheesy farewell moment where, you know, 10 guys sitting around a campfire just, just crying and acting awkward, you know, and just talking about how great Nate is, you know, and just saying, hey, these are the things that we love about you, man. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, Anthony, by far, he cried the most. I'll just let you all know that. Uh, that dude, just a crier. And, uh, but I was, I was probably a close second. Okay. And, and I'm sharing stuff with Nate, and I, I don't want to do this in a sense just to honor him as he's, you know, kind of moving, moving out of here pretty soon, but also just to illustrate this point. One of the things that I love so much about Nate, and I told him this, I said, gosh, man, I've just never met a man before in my life who's so willing to just admit how terrible they are. I mean, like, it's, we'll sit down and we'll be having a conversation and we're all just talking about, like, life or, or it could be theology, it could just be sports, it's just something. And maybe, you know, my heart wants to get judgmental about somebody else and Nate comes in and it's like every time he's like, yeah, no, that's, I really then began to analyze my own heart and I had to confess this. And, you know, he's just immediately going to, I'm just kind of messed up and I need help here. And I told him, I said to him, I said, you know what, man, it's because of that type of life that you've led, because of that type of honesty, that I don't think I've gone crazy in the first two and a half years of playing this church. Because there's expectations, and I wear them probably more than I should, and I don't want to fail, and there's all these things, and what are people saying about this, that, and the other? And I constantly get reminded that it's not about me. I constantly get reminded, it's okay to just lay before people, and especially before God, and say, I just don't have it all together. And and so for us this morning, if you walk away with anything, it's that I pray that every single day you can wake up in your time in prayer with God. And listen, if you're here and you're not a believer and you're just, you're starting some stuff, starting to churn just a little bit, say, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Would that be the resounding prayer of the church of Jesus Christ to say, man, I believe, but help me more because I don't have this figured out. And let's just trust God to answer. The second interaction that I think is, is, is just right in the text and helpful for us is Jesus' interaction with the apostles. Because there's also this, this lament and this frustration that they haven't got it. They've been walking with them. They said just, you know, the chapter before, you're the Christ, you're him, you're the guy, we believe it. And yet there's still these issues. And so the apostles says, well, why weren't we able to cast it out? And Jesus says, well, this kind leaves only by prayer. And so you're thinking, surely, at somewhere in the interaction with the apostles and this boy who has possessed by this demonic spirit, that's somewhere in there that they prayed. You know, like somewhere in there, they would have said, God, can you do this? And so what is being communicated? Because clearly they said that. And again, I think here's, it's, it's very simple. I think it's pretty plain. I think what he's saying is that they were relying on themselves. That they had, they had begun to drink the Kool-Aid about being in the inner circle. They had begun to, to say, no, like, okay, so we've been walking with you. You taught us how to feed 5,000, then you taught us again because we were boneheaded how to feed 4,000. We've seen you do all these miracles. We've already been doing some of this kind of stuff here. And then I think pride. I think they thought they were something. And I think they began to just rely on their own power. I think they began to rely on themselves. I think that their faith, I think for the believer, 
believership, okay? And again, we're, we're making that distinction. For believership, it's, no, I, I'm, I'll be dependent on me. I'll have faith in me. I can do this. God, you've done it. You know, you've died for my sins. You've done all that stuff. But now I'll just go and do this based on my own strength. And we do this beyond just like caring for other people. Now we try and solve our sin by ourselves. Now we try and just do this entire Christian life. We, we believed for a second when we got saved that we couldn't save ourselves, but we keep trying to save ourselves. Amen? You know what I'm saying? Doesn't make sense. He's like, stop. Stop depending on you. Depend. Pray. It's, this time can only be driven out by God, by dependence and faith in him and nobody else. That's what the disciple does. Let's wrap up and land this thing, this last little section. Returning kind of to this death and resurrection theme, which is always, it's always fun for the apostles to hear, but verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, it's really interesting to me because Jesus, a lot of times, speaks in parable, and what you see throughout, especially the Gospel of Mark, is they have to go back and say, hey man, didn't understand that. Will you clarify? Because it's a parable, it's a story. It needed some, some breaking down. Jesus said the truth about what was to happen as plain as he possibly could, and yet they still miss it. He says, hey guys, gather up. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go. I will be betrayed. People will kill me, and then three days later I'll rise. Okay? I'm going to go. People will betray me. They will kill me, and three days later I will rise. And then they walk away. I don't know what that means. I don't. What do you think? What do you, you think? No. And, and then that, that just, whoa. Seems, seems quite obvious. I think what's amazing about this, though, is that it took him eight chapters. It took him a good amount of time to figure out who he was. Okay. I mean, it, it took him a while to finally get the fulfillment of Mark chapter one. This is my son, Jesus, with whom I'm open. It took him a while to just get who he was. It's going to take him a little while longer to figure out what it means to follow him. You see, the gospel, the good news for us today is that we don't have, to all this, have all this figured out right now. It's not about perfection. It's not about having this perfect faith. It's not about all of a sudden achieving a certain status within the Christian hierarchy of, of God's favor. It's about honestly realizing, see, he covers everything. You see, I think the believership, discipleship breakdown here at the end is the believer, the believer is, is, is afraid because in that, there's no room for non-perfect faith. But the disciple who gets what Jesus was actually going to do, to get what he was actually about, to realize what he had come for, to realize it wasn't about them, to really get all of the calling of the discipleship of Jesus was to understand that in discipleship, in walking and following Jesus, there is room for imperfect belief. There is room for us not to fully get. I mean, we, we need to get it, right? We need to get, okay, Jesus lived the life we could not live. Like all of the, the good things we wish we could do, all the sin we wish we didn't, he lived that life perfectly. 
We have to get that. We have to get that then he goes to a cross and he fulfills what he says here in verses 31, 32, and 33. He fulfills that. He goes to the cross. He dies for the sins of the world. He takes your sin and punishment, puts it on his shoulders. His righteousness goes on yours. We have to believe that. We have to believe that three days later he rose from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, and death, that in his victory we would find victory in him, new life, reborn, and reunited with God. Amen? In discipleship, as you follow Jesus, we don't just like know him. Okay, it's not to say he's God, but we know what he's about. There's room to not have all this to figure it out. And so although the call to discipleship is, I mean, it's high. The bar is high. What's amazing is I think the reality is, is that in and of ourselves, we always fall below the line, but Jesus bridges that gap too and makes us exactly what he needs us to be to accomplish his mission in the world, to redeem all things for his glory and our joy. Amen? This is the gospel. This is the good news. That in this breakdown of believer, disciple, where do I stand? It's a pursuit of God that says, I don't have it figured out, not an achievement of how good you can be. That is really good news in a culture that always talks about getting better and achieving so that you get to the place you need to be. We never got to Jesus. He came down to us. Every other, every other religion, every other philosophy, they're all going to say, well, I mean, you need to work a bit more, you need to try a bit harder, you need to get there. And every time you read Scripture and every time we look at the Gospel, it's, no, 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 we don't go there. He came here because we couldn't get there on our own. Okay. That's good news for us in this call to discipleship this morning. And so I want to land with this. Nate and I and, and Anthony, we were getting together, and we do this thing called Preaching Collective, and so you heard about it. And, uh, and we'll sit down, we'll try and just kind of look at the text a couple weeks out and just say, hey, what's, what's going on here? And, and he talked about this, again, he's, he's a genius, but he talked about some from his econ class, which I remember nothing other than don't lose your money. Um, and he said there's something called revealed preference. Something called revealed preference. And what it essentially means is that you do what you truly believe. That you will make decisions upon what you truly and actually believe. Revealed preference. And he shared that with me. I was like, that's, that's just really good. And so true. Uh, each and every one. So you're going to leave today, and you're going to go and do something. You're going to go live your life. Why are you going to go back to, you know, the, the hot valley and sweat? And you're going to be down there, and you're going to want to curse, okay? <laughs> but you shouldn't. You're going to go to work, and you're going to want to try and cut corners because we're silly and we like to sin. A lot of you students, you're going you're gonna to go to school, you're going to go to a party, and you're going to want to be tempted with this, and you're going to want to make decisions that way. Like Throughout this life, there's going to be stuff, and we're going to jump into it next week. We're really going to talk about, about sin and the temptation in this world and things that break us down and pull us from Jesus and on and that, but that's just going to happen as soon as you go. And I want to say, reveal preference. What do you truly believe? What do you guys truly believe this morning? As you go, what do you truly believe? Do you know who he is? Is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh? Yes? Check that, okay? Do you believe what he's called you to, to be a disciple, to follow him in everything he has done, to be conformed to his image? Do you believe that? Do you truly believe that? Check it, not check it. Have you counted the cost? If you know it, you know both these things, and you've counted and said, okay, I, I'm in, I want that, 
then here we go. Let us follow. And follow means love and obedience and all that stuff. It means presenting the gospel to the, word through, the world through word and deed. It means a handful of things. But today, what do you truly believe, Christian? Non-Christian. If you're here and visiting, thanks for being here. I know it's always can be weird to come into a new place. If it's your first time, 10th time, whatever, thanks for being here, asking good questions, because that's exactly what this, this father did. And I believe, I just, I just I got questions. I'm not sure, I'm not fully there. Thanks for being here. Continue to ask questions. But what do you truly believe? I know there was, there was when I got saved, when I gave my life to God, I think I could have done it probably months earlier if someone had said, would you just stop and actually process what you believe? You know, if, if I just was, someone said, sit down, really break it down. And in God's sovereignty, there's all that too. But man, just what, uh, what do you truly believe? And I think some of you, maybe you've been coming for a while, you, you might, understand, might realize you believe more than you think you did. What do we truly believe? Let's be disciples and let's go and see this city change for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.